everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Simple Money Podcast. This is Sinduri. And I'm Pranchu. So in this episode, we are going to be talking about the not-so-new word in the block chain. That's terrible. It's Bitcoin. Oh dear. So should we invest in it? And what does Bitcoin tell us about the meaning of money? And then we're going to take a fascinating look into sales quota at financial institutions. Remember that annoying insurance salesperson who would call you every day and wouldn't let you go until you actually bought the policy? Yeah, you wouldn't believe the connections between him and fraud at our financial institutions. I'm excited to talk about these things. I'm always excited to talk about these things. Great, let's get started. Okay, Pranshu, let's start with a quick tutorial. What is Bitcoin and what's blockchain? You love giving me tough questions to start, don't you? I do. Okay. All right, let's start with the blockchain since that's simpler, right? Okay. In the real world, if you pay me 100 rupees, someone has to make sure that you actually have that 100 rupees in your bank account to pay me. So normally, financial institutions like banks or a payment processor like Visa and MasterCard would play that role. Mm-hmm. So they would maintain a financial ledger that maintains how much money each person has who has an account with them, as well as which transactions have taken place and so on. So that way, when you pay me 100 rupees, the bank verifies that you actually have that 100 rupees to pay me and then it transfers the money to my account. It records it on the ledger, so now it knows Prancho has 100, Sindhu has zero. The blockchain is effectively this ledger, but instead of a single bank monitoring it and maintaining it, every single person maintains it together. Okay. Um, So the ledger is public, right? And that's a different way of thinking about things. But what effectively happens is, let's say now with the Bitcoin, you send me two Bitcoin, this transaction is recorded onto the blockchain. In very simplified terms, somebody has to verify that you actually had the two Bitcoin to send me. The blockchain enforces a set of mathematical protocols that make this verification process artificially difficult. Mm -hmm. So it's a very computationally intense challenge for somebody to figure out if you actually had those two Bitcoin. But the second somebody does, that gets added onto the blockchain, it gets verified as a transaction, and the person who successfully verified it first gets Bitcoin as a reward. Okay. Okay, so <clears throat> what can I do with a Bitcoin? Uh, not, like, as, not as much as you could do with the rupee. Okay. <laughs> um, can I go to a store and buy things with it? Or how can I use it other than to make a quick buck in the market? So some, some merchants accept Bitcoin. Okay. And But it's not widespread by any means. It is certainly not... It is certainly not what you could consider globally accepted currency. Okay. So it's like, I remember you telling me before we started that someone bought a pizza with Bitcoin and now it's effectively like a million dollar pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a few years ago, somebody bought, I think, a nine Bitcoin pizza. Okay. It's like the world's most expensive. Yeah, pizza. yeah, yeah. Basically, basically, right? Like an incredibly expensive pizza. And, um, and this gets to an issue, which is that Bitcoin prices are very volatile. I was going to come to that. So we have suddenly, or at least I think starting late last year, people who I know who definitely don't have an interest in the financial markets or any kind of trading were beating themselves up for not buying that one Bitcoin that their friend mm-hmm. was trying to sell them five years ago yep. because it's worth a whole lot more today. Yeah. So, you know, in December, Bitcoin prices hit 20,000 US dollars per Bitcoin. 
So why are prices so volatile? What's driving them up and down? Oh, that's a good question, right? So look, let's look at some of the prices, right? Like 20,000 in December, mm-hmm. 7,000 in February. So just so four months later, it dropped? By 62 months later, it drops by 65%. Right. Yeah. Uh, and now we're up to 10K. So we're back up by 42% in one month, right? So this is incredible volatility. Nobody is really sure why. My pet theory is that Bitcoin inherently doesn't have value. Mm-hmm. We're not sure how to value it as a financial asset. Everybody's making their best guess. So when there's no logic and there's no rationale, a lot of it is driven purely by animal spirits. So something that we discussed in the last podcast is a notion of how currencies have prices, right? Uh, you have a high demand for dollars. People in India who are buying dollars with Indian rupees have a high demand for it. The price of a dollar in rupee terms goes up. Mm-hmm. Similarly with Bitcoin, it's just supply and demand. The supply of Bitcoin is limited. We know this for a fact. The demand for Bitcoin varies very wildly. If you think Bitcoin is going to go up, you will buy Bitcoin, anticipating that when it goes up, you can sell it. A lot of people will have the same thought, but thus demand for Bitcoin will increase. The mm-hmm. price goes up. And then all of a sudden, everyone panics and like, oh, no, wait, this is too high. And then they start selling. There is no fundamental logic for why Bitcoin's price is the way it is. And that's why we see it swing so much. So it's like speculation. It is absolutely speculation. And this is, again, I mean, I think crypto enthusiasts would flame me for saying this. Mm -hmm. But I think when you're making speculative bets with little logic to prove why the speculation can move one way or the other, it's very akin to gambling. That's that's a big statement because there are a lot of people who who call themselves investors. Yep who are buying Bitcoin yes. as an investment. Mm-hmm. So is it fair to call something an investment if you think it's also gambling? So sure it is, right? Like you could, mm-hmm. uh, you have hedge funds these days that bet on sports. Mm-hmm. And you could say you're investing in a hedge fund, but really you're betting on sports through a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. So it comes to the nature of what a financial asset is, right? Mm-hmm. And what you consider a financial asset to be. And this brings us to a very interesting discussion around what money really is. A financial asset is anything that you can value that somebody else will pay a price for. Bitcoin and money are financial assets. Well, Bitcoin a financial asset, we're not sure, but let's take it for the sake of discussion that it is, right? If Bitcoin and money are financial assets, do they have a price? What is their price and what is someone willing to pay for them? Hmm. All currencies have some amount of utility to them. So you render a service to me, I will pay you in currency. It's a means of exchange course right like the most inefficient way for us to exchange things is the barter system Mm. which is you give me 10 apples i give you five oranges you take your five oranges you go to somebody and you get eight bananas it's far more efficient for us to just exchange rupees instead but if we look at the history of currencies and how we got to where we are today right one of our earliest currencies was gold Mm -hmm. Um, gold was nice because it's limited in supply it's really stable metal as far as things go so it's hard to destroy and i think people just like the fact that it looked yellow and pretty Right. Um, And so it was valuable, right? Because anybody in the world would accept gold as payment. So you could take your gold, you could go somewhere else, you could buy something with it. That was what made gold useful. Everybody accepted it. Mm -hmm. And since everybody collectively accepted it, it had value. Um, But gold was heavy, right? Like you can't go around carrying gold bricks and you can't divide your gold bricks arbitrarily when you want to pay someone half a gold brick. Mm -hmm. Um, So we eventually at some point switched to coins and from coins to paper currency. Um, But all of those currencies initially were linked to gold, which means... The central bank says, I have 10 tons of gold. Each paper currency I put out is worth a certain amount of gold. Mm -hmm. At any point, you can come back to me with this paper currency and get gold in exchange for it. 
So instead of exchanging gold, in effect, we are exchanging a promise for gold. Right. The promise for gold has value, since in theory you can exchange it for gold. After World War II, we switched from the gold standard, which is what I just described, mm -hmm. to the dollar exchange standard, which is now, instead of exchanging your currency for gold, you exchange your currency for dollars, and then at the American Central Bank, you exchange dollars for gold. Mm -hmm. So we're one step removed now from the, from the gold standard. Right. And then in 1971, the US decides, okay, you know what, we don't want to do the gold standard anymore. You can't exchange your dollars for anything. So now, what is money anymore, right? Like, money effect at this point, a US dollar can't be exchanged for anything. We can print an unlimited number of US dollars, so the supply is unlimited. What is money? It only has value because it's a stamped piece of paper that the US government says you have to accept this piece of paper as a means of exchange. That's the only reason that it's valuable. So, you know, that's fascinating because does that effectively mean that a lot of countries, like for instance, we saw South Korea, I think, going up in arms about Bitcoin, mm -hmm. like other countries. Are they afraid of being destabilized by Bitcoin because it's so anarchic in some ways, no? It is anarchic in some ways. It's it's a very fa it's a very fascinating argument. I, I think at a practical level, they're probably just worried about collecting taxes. Mm. Uh, it's you know a lot easier for illegal transactions to happen on the blockchain than it is for it to happen on Mastercard, and I think they're very just worried about people not paying their capital gains tax. Uh, but I really like the argument that a country has to vigorously defend its currency with armed force, right? Because when currency is fiat, as it is today, it's not linked to anything. It only has value if we all believe it has value. This money is sort of fictitious, right? Mm -hmm. So from a philosophical point of view, it's, it's a collective fiction that we have all chosen to believe in. And then you have the iron hand of the state protecting this fiction. It's kind of a fun argument to think that here's this anarchic cryptocurrency that has no iron hand of the state behind it. It is going to expose this fiction to all of us. Okay, can I throw a curveball question at Absolutely. you? Absolutely. So, yes, being backed by an armed force and a country, all of that is very valid. But can we say that something like Bitcoin can help erase inequality? Or is that a completely baseless How idea? would we say that? Which is that... Like, I don't know. <laughs> I heard it somewhere. <laughs> I think it's a baseless idea, and I'll say why. Oh. Uh, the idea with Bitcoin initially was that, great, it's this decentralized currency, no one agent has power. It's proven to not be true, right? There was an article in Bloomberg about a month and a half ago which showed that there were only a small number of addresses that controlled 40% of the Bitcoin network. So you've had the same wealth concentration that we had in you know normal currency in a normal economy. Bitcoin is computationally intensive. To mine it requires a lot of computational power, specialized GPUs, hardware that is designed specifically for this purpose, and a large supply of electricity, which means that there is a certain amount of privilege inherent in the people who are able to mine a lot of cryptocurrency. You make a lot of cryptocurrency, but you mine a lot of cryptocurrency successfully, you sell that cryptocurrency, you buy more mining tools, you mine more, and you mine faster than the others. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of Bitcoin being decentralized, I, you know... I don't think it will actually happen. I don't. I don't think it, we, we don't know for sure if it's how decentralized it is today. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's as decentralized as people hope it will be. Okay. Well, what advice do you have for our investors? Right? Should they invest in Bitcoin? Ah, oh, this is such a fascinating discussion. So, this is with the benefit of hindsight. Five years ago, great investment. I don't think it's a great investment today. I'll say this. 
There's a great book by an author named Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who, in the grand theme of uh, alma mater of our dear university, he is another alma mater of the University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, and he wrote a great book called Anti-Fragile, amongst mm-hmm. many books, and one of the things he talks about is asymmetric risks. So when you take a risk, if the amount that you lose is very low compared to the amount that you could win, it is mm-hmm. worth taking the risk, even if the probability of a win is extremely low. Mm-hmm. So let's take Bitcoin as an example. When Bitcoin was $5, it made sense to buy it because at most you lose $5. Mm. At that point, the question doesn't become how much could I lose? It becomes how much do I win if this works? If Bitcoin magically finds that one use case that we can't live without Bitcoin for, all of a sudden Bitcoin is incredibly valuable and that $5 is worth so much. Mm-hmm. So your downside risk is capped. Your upside risk is huge. Mm-hmm. You can make so much money off of it, even if the probability of it working is small. I don't think this is the case anymore. When Bitcoin is at 10,000 US dollars, you can lose a lot of money on it. And as we saw with the financial crisis, there was this great blog post by you know, the venture capitalist Brad Feld uh, about a few months ago where he said that it can all go to zero. Right? We can't mm-hmm. take it for granted that the price of Bitcoin will continue to rise. If we find a great application for Bitcoin that is truly a compelling use case other than buying illegal drugs online, Mm -hmm. Bitcoin will soar in value and all the people holding Bitcoin today will make a lot of money. But it could all go to zero. So if you're willing to spend 1% of your income that you know you might never get back, Mm. that has a high chance of going to zero, but a very small chance of becoming extremely, extremely large, go for it. So basically do it if you can afford the risk. And take a very small amount of it in your portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a 1% of your net worth risk. This is the risk that you would take if you are very rich and you're investing in venture startups. This or like the... taking money to a casino, basically. Yeah, I effectively. I know I might not get this back. Absolutely, but... absolutely. At mm-hmm. least with a casino, it's fun. Is it? I mean, some people might not find Bitcoin fun. Hmm. Well, sound advice. Any Anything else you want to say to our listeners about Bitcoin? Yes. Okay. Do you know why it is bad to watch Bitcoin be mined? Why? Because it's very cryptographic. <laughs> oh, that's bad. <laughs> that's terrible. That's terrible. Thanks, Franchu, we'll for everything back. except the joke. <laughs> we'll be back in part two. All right. Part two. We're going to be discussing those annoying people who keep calling you and won't stop because they want to sell you financial products. Sindhu, Mm. tell us why quota-driven sales at financial institutions is annoying, but Mm. also misleading and dangerous. So I'll start with the annoying part, which is that all of us have received phone calls from telemarketers who we most certainly have not given our number to, offering us insurance policies, bank loans, a whole gamut of financial offerings. Someone once tried to sell me pet insurance. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're desperate. And I feel bad slamming the phone down on them. But I'm also, there's a part of me that just burns with fury. Uh, you know, my number is DND and I keep getting call upon call. And it's such a common problem, especially in India, where I read an article on the personal finance website Jago Investor, like 10 ways to get a telemarketer off your back. And one is, tell them that you just lost your job, <laughs> so you won't hear back from them <laughs> That's for hilarious. a couple of months, right? But then... Or I sell have... the unemployment insurance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So 
I had a cousin of mine who recently told me about this experience where he went to a leading private bank to open an account and start a few uh, policies or whatever. And he was supposed to go back and finish some paperwork. But within that date, he got a call from, you know, he got a WhatsApp message from the, the salesperson he was dealing with, basically imploring him to do it sooner so he could meet his monthly targets before the end of the month. Presumably this happened on February 26th. Somewhere really close to the end of February. So I just got thinking and, you know, I I talked to someone else who said her mom's best friend asked her to sign up for an insurance policy because they were so close. Yeah. And then this lady, like, ghosted them afterwards. So I started digging deeper into this to understand what was driving banks towards this very brazen, quota-driven... Um, way of functioning which is so I like I was curious to understand if it's India's large population which means we have a large young working force that we can just put out on the roads and in call centers to get to people but why are people selling and cross-selling and mis-selling so desperately yeah that's a a good question so what I did Pranchu is I spoke with a gentleman by the name of Hemindra Hazari Mm -hmm. he is a SEBI registered uh, research analyst He's been studying the Indian capital markets for over 20 years. And if you just do a quick Google of him, you will find that he's written for a lot of publications, most of them independent, like Mm -hmm. The Wire or uh, The Scroll, I think, too, Mm -hmm. talking about how banks are compromising their operations and audit departments at the interest or like to benefit sales. Wait, that's incredible. Why and how? I guess why is a little obvious, right? Like you make more money off fees and all of these products. How? How is that possible? There is a business strategy here actually. And that business strategy really came about with the introduction of the new private sector banks in India. And the kind of branch network they built up since they were formed in the mid-1990s. Now what they have done is, in these banks, there is a very high priority given uh, to the uh, marketing and the sale of financial products. Mm-hmm. And especially what is called third party financial products. That means the bank is involved in selling of mutual funds, selling of insurance of third parties. These are products obviously which the banks themselves do not conceive. Say like an ICICI bank would actively sell ICICI potential life insurance products or sell ICICI potential mutual fund products. Now, these are all separate companies within the board of ICICI banks. Now, what it has led to is that since very stiff uh, sales targets are given to their uh, sales heads, they force or they try to persuade the customers of banks uh, to buy into these products and many a time the customers of the banks they are only familiar with a very basic bank deposit product Mm -hmm. they are not really so well informed about the intricacies of a life insurance product for example so they take advantage of the of the financial illiteracy of their bank customers uh, to mid-sell these products, and you know, I have written extensively on this, yeah. is that uh, the mid-selling of life 
that it's completely a management strategy and it's not rogue employees. Okay. So in 2016, after demonetization, a few banks came under a lot of fire for accusations of money laundering. And Axis Bank, I think, got the most dragged out in this whole scandal. And Hazari wrote a piece for The Wire about how Axis Bank's CEO, Hmm. uh, Shika Sharma, had, during the start of her tenure, placed far greater emphasis on sales, reducing sometimes the budget that was sent to the operations, audit, and risk teams. And they put these insane performance targets on the heads of these sales professionals, who then resorted to doing whatever they could to get people to sign up for products. So often they were selling mutual funds and insurance policies and the core banking um, service that they offered wasn't enough on its own, either out of greed or some people argue that because of a lot of government interference, private banks weren't able to make money. So they had to sell other products. And often it just felt, sorry, it fell under this one umbrella, right? Like you have one private bank and under that you have a life insurance policy you have. Uh, a mutual fund policy and all of these other things that the bank salesperson or a relationship manager is trying to shove down your throat. And let me assure you that this is not the work of rogue employees. This is a management strategy uh, to achieve certain targets so that they can, you know, the top people can get higher salaries, higher bonuses and if they are listed on the stock exchange, they get higher stock options. This is the great evil today that it is the stock options and the remuneration structure of the senior management that is really driving all this mis-selling that we are seeing today. And what frustrates me sometimes so much about seeing news like this is that we all know that this person who calls you up, who claims to have the financial advisor word in his title, isn't actually a financial advisor, right? No. This person is not actually giving you products that you need for your benefit. He's giving you products that push his monthly sales quota in the right direction. Yeah, and I think there's something that is inherently very frustrating about that. There are questions on Quora from these salespeople asking, how can I sell more? right? They've become so desperate. So we have to understand the human side of it, which is that these young, mostly young salespeople are under huge amounts of pressure to perform. And sometimes they've done things like forging signatures just so they can meet their monthly targets. And we, I recently saw somebody, a woman who had tweeted at HDFC Life, which uh, sells life insurance. And it seems like she opened a Twitter account just to tweet at them because she literally has two tweets in her profile, right? She said, quote, two people from your company asked me to invest and then they vanished. I have all the proof. I invested five lakhs and now they aren't picking up any calls. Please take action fast. This is incredible because I think so much of what we see around fraud and mis-selling and so on in the banks is, like you said, it's probably very traceable to these insane sales targets that Mm -hmm. are placed by upper management um, The journalist who you had mentioned, uh, Mr. Hazari, has called out the Axis Bank CEO Mm -hmm. multiple times. And other banks, ICICI Bank. I mean, you just look at his uh, writing and you see him calling out each bank. And I'm like, poor man, like this job cannot be an easy thing to do. This is so fascinating, too, because we saw in our last week's podcast episode and in all the current affairs following the Nirav Modi scandal, how chasing fees leads banks to do things that you could consider as fraudulent activity. We've also seen this problem happen in the West, right? This hasn't happened just in India. Uh, There was a famous incident of 
of Wells Fargo in the US mm -hmm. recently mm. getting yeah. a huge fine and huge sanctions placed on them by banking regulators in the US because they were not just you know overselling products really they were fraudulently selling products right and opening bank accounts in the opening name of credit cards opening yeah. all these accounts in the name of their customers when they didn't even agree to it is this an indian problem then is this a problem of a sales driven financial product culture i don't know if it's an indian problem but i feel like there are certain things that have been exacerbated because of india um i think one of the things is that there are people I, i think i made this point and i keep going back to this human element of people who need jobs and there's a large working force and so many people who go to engineering schools and come out with little prospect of finding job in the industry many of them are fed into this private banking employment machinery and they have all these sales targets and india is probably one of the only countries in the world where if you want to open a bank account five different banks will send you a salesperson immediately on their bikes that's true and they come to your home they will take your signature they will fill out all your paperwork for you yeah knowing full well that they're competing with at least four other establishments so they've calculated the probability that they might not land this account but they can expend the you know the resources to try it anyway you know when we uh, opened the simple money formally incorporated simple money as a company you will not imagine the number of people who showed up at our office ringing the bell constantly claiming that they had our paperwork for these bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And and this is incredible because I I think it speaks a little bit to ethics in marketing and sales. And I think ethics with financial products is a harder nut than it might be for other branches of marketing and advertising. Mm -hmm. A bank account is somewhat innocuous, so let's keep that aside, right? Like what happens if you open an extra bank account? But what about selling products that are not good for clients? That's the thing. Um, you know, Mr. Hazari talks about how one should today never sign anything without getting it fully vetted by someone you trust, and that person often isn't the one who's selling you the product. So you have to be extremely careful when you start dealing with banks. It is most unfortunate because normally we expect bank, you know, bank staff uh, to be the upholders of honesty and integrity. Unfortunately, the sales culture. Has totally corrupted the system there. So if ever anyone approaches you, please do not sign anything immediately. And whenever you have to sign a check, please take advice and please do not sign any blank check and give it to the staff of either the bank or to the staff of the insurance company. The reason why this is continuing to happen is because no one is willing to call these. Uh, these institutions out P- mainstream media houses rely on these same institutions for their funding oh yeah right? that's true of course advertising and yeah. marketing spend you and you try googling something like this i could not find anything except the occasional consumer complaint diary entry on one or two mainstream publications and research analysts whose job it is also to do this will not do it because sometimes the firm that they work for is often selling products from this institution. Oh wow. So then who is going to call it out? So it's just not an a business ethics issue, it's also journalistic integrity. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have whistleblowers at some of these institutions who are revealing what's happening and they are also not they they have incredibly difficult lives because, yeah. you know, they're up against these huge institutions. We have as a generation, I think in India, 
at least at least maybe maybe the generation that came before this you know maybe mm-hmm. the people who started entering the financial markets in the 80s and the 90s there's an entire generation of india that has been missold bad financial products right mm. the endless number of lic insurance policies the ulips all of these term plans that offer miserably bad financial returns enrich the institutions greatly give the sales people a commission but actually leave these people making barely more than inflation mm. yeah and this is crazy um it's completely crazy, you know, and it's just what kind of advice can we offer to people who are living in a really badly regulated system? Um, I think it's important for the powers that be to enforce more regulation and for people in that interim time to really become as financially literate as possible. So be very cautious when you're buying products and don't be fooled by a friendly face. Absolutely. And certainly don't give in to the nagging insurance salesman. He's going to disappear as soon as you've bought your policy from him. Yeah. Your money might as well. Now, unfortunately, in India, I really don't see the regulator taking any repentant action because, in my opinion, the regulators will give a hand in glove with some of these uh, uh, companies, which is a very sad state of affairs today. And mm-hmm. this is the only explanation that I have all right part three in part one we spoke about bitcoin part two we spoke about fraud and mis-selling in part three we speak about something that is basically both of them put together sindhu did you know that you could create your own cryptocurrency yes i did that's amazing why haven't you i'm still waiting for a great name ah we have some names for great cryptocurrencies. Most of these are probably complete scams, but in the world of initial coin offerings, we have some favorites. Why don't you go down the list, Sindhu? Sure. I really like this one. Antimatter. It might not exist. Ah, oh, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> That's a wonderful cryptocurrency. Okay, here's, here's one of my favorites. Mark's coin, because uh, it might be time for the distributed ledger to rise up against the bourgeoisie. <laughs> Dim coin. Dim coin. For people who are a little... Awkward. Here's another one. It's called gas. Hmm. It's a cryptocurrency that's literally, the word is just gas, which to me smells <laughs> of a Ponzi scheme. Mm. You know, there's actually a cryptocurrency called Ponzi coin. Wow, who are they fooling? Yeah. All right, how about this one? Infinite coin because we'll supposedly never run out of it, which seems to defeat the purpose of it. Yeah. But is it better than Amsterdam coin? Because presumably they wanted the price to keep going higher. Oh dear. Take us to the last one, Pancho. India coin. India coin advertises itself on its website as saying, are you a big supporter of the human rights in India and of the Indian people in general? Yes. India coin will suit you. Oh my god. That sounds like scam if I have ever no, heard it. Sounds one. like patriotism in cryptocurrency. What is the connection between human rights and cryptocurrency? I don't know if either exists. <laughs> that is too deep for this podcast. Thank you so much everyone. That was episode 2. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Simple Money is a portfolio tracker that tracks your mutual funds and equities by reading the statements that you get via email. 
So if you're anything like me and you're used to dealing with 100 page Excel spreadsheets, data entry, and uploading information to messy places, you will like Simple Money. I don't say that because I'm very rich, I say that because I'm very disorganized. Simple Money is the perfect tool for financial investors who are serious about their investing. It'll make your life much simpler. It's made mine, it's made the lives of thousand others. Thanks so much.